since it's um, Shavuos next week, which is the time of the receiving of the Torah, let's try to let's try to identify a theme <coughs> that's as deep as we can in the spiritual path or the spiritual world, which um, will, I hope, help us to get to that point with a deeper perspective or a more sensitized approach. Really too much to talk about because if we put our finger on a central theme in Torah, then obviously everything else will be a a development of that idea. We have to speak about everything really. But let's do our best to try to pin down the essence and see if we can allow it to, to flower, if you like, into all, the, all its applications, all its uh, branches, ramifications. Maybe we can start with a question like this. We have a principle in the spiritual world, or the spiritual way of thinking, if you like, in Torah. We have a principle that everything that exists in the spiritual world has a counterpart, a projection in the physical world. One of the most um, perhaps uh, clear expressions of that is a thing called Mipsari Echzeh. Mipsari Echzeh From my flesh I see Hashem. From my flesh. Which means that the highest entity, the highest concept, right, what we call that which is completely transcendent, the divine, I can see that from my flesh. That's a remarkable thing. Flesh always means the lowest level of humanity. Whenever the Torah talks about basa, basa means meat. That's a very crude expression. There are a lot of ways to describe a human being and even the human body. But to call it flesh or meat is a particularly crude, particularly low expression. And yet the principle is mipsari echzel. That means my flesh from, from the lowest level of my bodily structure and function, I can see that which is highest. That's a principle. And it's a consistent principle that flows throughout the whole. In fact, it's a, it's a complete principle. It means that every aspect of the body teaches us about a higher thing. It means every element of the higher world is reflected in the body. It's a, it's a it's like all Torah principles, consistent and uniform. The importance of this principle, obviously, which without much thought you can see, it isn't just a parallel, and it isn't only because the body is a projection of a higher reality. It isn't only that, although that's its origin. But its application or its importance in the world is that in order to know the higher world, you can study the body. In fact, the only way to know the higher world is to study the lower world. Since we don't have a sense organ, we don't have a faculty that can apprehend the higher world directly, so we have to study the manifest world, the lower world, in order to know that world. And in fact, that's the reason, you might say, at this level of discussion, that this, that this parallel exists. If you want to know the higher world, since you don't have access to it directly, and yet that's your obligation in life, is to get to know that which is higher, not to simply relate to that which is physical and material, then the avenue of access is, paradoxically, if strangely, you engage the physical correctly, and by using it correctly with the maturity and the sensitivity to penetrate its surface, you see the higher world. I mean, the illustration, the classic illustration of this principle, probably, is the idea of, let's say, getting in touch with a human soul. Right? After all, in a relationship, let it be marriage or let it be friendship, the idea of the relationship is knowing the person inside. It's not knowing the body. It's, I mean, this is a message that unfortunately needs to be said in this generation. I mean, it's obvious this generation has confused the person, the body for the person. But men more than women. But 
obviously the function of a relationship, if it's a human and not an animal relationship, is to know the person inside. And yet there's no way to directly contact the person inside. We have no faculty or organ that can sense another human soul. Even though the drive here, the thrust of the relationship is to know the person inside, you never make, that means no matter how well you know someone, no matter how intimately and how long you are spending with that person, you never see them. The only avenue of access you have to a person is through their body. That's a very cruel and bizarre paradox. But the truth is it's adequate because if you watch that body carefully and you watch its nuances of expression and its ripples of movement and its subtle changes of expression and its responses and it's all you have, projected onto that screen that is the body, you perceive the inner being. (coughs) With enough contact with those bodily expressions and with a sensitivity to read them correctly, you see the inner being. It's one of the secrets, one of the reasons why the Hebrew word for panim, which means a face, is the same as panim, which means the inside. It's one of those... Hebrew words that have a duality in its meaning. The word pan, panim in Hebrew, means both the outside and the inside. One of those paradoxical words of duality. Because the face, the face of the thing, not just the face of the human, but the face of a thing in general, its outer facet or its face, that is what you only access of avenue avenue of access you have to to the inner being. So what you do is you manipulate that body, you draw it close to you, you study it carefully, you watch its movements, and it speaks to you very eloquently of who the person is inside, even though you never see the person inside. The idea of the spiritual path is to watch the ripples that are moving through the physical world and to know the being that lives behind it. You have no way, you have no direct access to the spiritual being, to that entity, that soul of the world, let's say. You have no access, of, no access to that. But what you do have is a careful potential for careful and sensitive, perceptive observation of the world. And if you do that, you should see rippling beneath its surface the one who lives within it just as surely as you see the soul of a person whom you get to know, even though you only see their body or perhaps even only their clothes. So far, so good? That's the principle. We've shared that many times together. Now, if that's true, we can use this powerful tool to ask many questions. For example, when you want to know something about Hashem, about God, the question to ask is, where do I see in my flesh that faculty? And if you can target it correctly, if you can identify correctly in your flesh, in your personal experience, the place to study that thing, then you have all you need to get in touch with, with that which is deeper, even though you never see that which is deeper. Right? You don't ask more than exposure to the outer face, the garments, the body of your friend, in order to get to know them. It doesn't bother you. You use that skillfully and you make that perception, you make that switch, and you get to know who they are. So the question is, when you want to know that which is above, and you want to know those facets of the divine that we are meant to make contact with as Jews, as spiritual beings, humans, the question is, where in the physical world, or where perhaps in the flesh, or where in the world of my physiology or my emotions, even my experience, where do I look to see that faculty? Logical? going to be a long night. Eh? <laughs> so far, are we together? Well, that is the fact, whether you admit it or not. That is, the, that is the case. Now, let's try and apply this. One of the deepest things that we have as Jews, right? Our, perhaps our deepest teaching, is that Hashem is one. Is one. Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. God is one. What does that mean? We mean something far deeper than the fact that he's simply not two or three or four. We mean something much deeper than that, right? In fact, what we really mean is he's all that there is. That means, in essence, you are not here. Because all is the oneness of his existence. Remarkable idea, that. 
But be that as it may, how would you look, where would you look in your experience to perceive that? Again, if you, it must be possible, right? There's nothing that you're expected to relate to in the higher world, but that you're given an example within your experience. It would be unfair otherwise. How could you expect it to relate to something which is completely transcendent when you have just no point of contact with that thing? How could you be expected to relate to a human soul if you weren't given the body that you can take hold of and draw towards you? So you're given the body. Of course, the challenge is not to get stuck at the level of the body, but to see that it is a garment and a, a vehicle for that which is inside. But you wouldn't be given the requirement, the obligation, to get to know anything deeper unless you were given an avenue of access to that thing in the physical. It would be completely impossible otherwise. Correct? That follows? So if you ask, where are you supposed to look in the world of your experience, your physicality, your flesh, your, your emotions, your intellect, your inner being, your life, inner life, which faculty of your, of your body or your psyche... Where do you look to perceive the oneness of Hashem? You hear that question? We're talking about a completely transcendent thing. We're not only talking about the existence of God, Hashem's existence, which is an issue in its own right, but the fact that He's one. What does that mean? And how do you solve the paradox? I mean, how do you get in contact with the fact that the world looks like it's multiple and differentiated and particulate and broken down, it's made up of details, and yet we have the audacity, perhaps, to say that the world is all one. When you say Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokein Hashem Echad, when you say the word Echad, you're not supposed to focus. We credit an intelligent ten-year-old with being able to know that if he's one, if he's absolute, if he's, if he's divine, then there can't be two or three or four. That's not what we mean. We mean when we say one, we mean that there isn't anything else. When you say the word Echad, the, 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 the meditation should be so deep, the awareness should be so deep that at that moment you have Einoid Milvan, there's nothing besides him. That means even I disappear in melting into that oneness. That's why you shouldn't say the word Echad for too long. Because you could get lost. You could, you could leave entirely. Come down again. You bring down into the world that appears to be differentiated and fragmented and broken. You bring that oneness in. That's what Judaism is all about. Is saying and believing and understanding and making contact with the fact that the world, is, which is in fact presenting itself as, as terribly broken down, is a manifestation of oneness. Not ultimate paradox. So the question is, where do you look for that? Do, do, we, do we share the question? Do we, do we, yeah. We're not going to enjoy the answer unless we understand the question, enjoy the question. But let's try and explore this. Let's try and explore this with reference to the giving of the Torah and Shavuos and what a Jew's responsibility is or, or place is in that. And hopefully we'll make a difference here to the inner being, integrity of the self, and to the integrity of what relationship should be, and hopefully to the integrity of all of humanity, which is really what in case you hadn't noticed, you know, it's not, not in good shape. Yeah. So, the idea is like this. There's a unique feature of our consciousness, a unique feature of our perception, which is the tool for, for delving into this area. And that is that we have, the, we have an ability to perceive. And again, we're talking about inexperience here. To lock it into words totally is impossible. We're talking about something after all. We're looking for... We're looking for that perception of, of something so high that it's surprising that we can at all put it into words. So in the very clumsiest of words, we're going to try to share something which, which almost by definition can't be put into words. We're looking at the very highest element of what we can perceive. And not easy. In other words, what, what we need here is that the words should not do it, but your own inner experience should do it. That means, you know, the, the, the mystics say that Something that's true, when you learn something that's true spiritually, you don't have the sensation that you're learning something, you have the sensation that you're recognizing something. Right? So if we share this correctly, there should be an experience of the fact that we really always knew this. So let's try and do that.
we have the ability to perceive something remarkable in this area. And it's like this. Perhaps the most um, articulate or beautiful enunciation of this subject is Rabdestas. He says that there are three levels of order in the world. That means the cohesion of parts. The way parts get together to form structure, the world exists on three levels. It's remarkable actually to even understand <coughs> the levels of order in his discussion of order. That's also remarkable. See the Torah mind and how, it, how systematic it is. But Rabdesta said this, that there are three levels of organization, what he called Seder. Seder, which is what we're talking about now, began with Pesach, which was a Seder, organizing things in an order. Suresa Omer that we're going through now is counting seven times seven days in a very specific order. The world is ordered in a very specific way. It has three levels. Some of this we've probably discussed before, but let's see if we can take it further. The first level of order we don't have time to analyze fully. Just to note that the first level of order he called Seder L'Shem Seder. Without full analysis, it means that the world itself is symmetrical. The world has a symmetry or an order, a structure. The world's not chaotic. The fact that there are laws of physics and laws of chemistry yeah, the fact that there are law- laws mean that there's a predictable, repetitive structure here. It means that there's a symmetry, right? Otherwise, you couldn't phrase a law. That's how the world is. And there's a remarkable discussion here of human perception of order, how we, how we resonate with order. <coughs> we are creatures who we respond to a symmetry depending on our own symmetry. You know that? We, we respond to a symmetry. How do you feel when you put in a situation of order or disorder? Because our minds are projections of the higher world, our minds respond. That means, if you put in an ordered situation, let's say a a rhythmic situation, a a, a rhythmic musical situation, the way you respond to that depends on your own inner rhythm. If, for example, let's say say you're going on a train, and you have a rhythm that's clickety-click, 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 how do you respond to that monotonous rhythm? The answer is, depends on your own inner harmony. If you're at peace inwardly, let's say you're going to some longed-for journey and you're looking forward to the destination, then that sound is a wonderful, rhythmic, melodious, and you never get tired of it, and it's soothing and it's wonderful. There's a resonance with that harmony, that symmetry with your own inner symmetry. But if you're going on, an, on a terrifying journey, and if you're going to a place that you dread, then the sound becomes unbearable. Because the symmetry of that sound mocks the inner disharmony. The outer structure and the outer symmetry is mocked by the inner and this psychic pain that's set up. And you see that in many ways. People who find themselves in, uh, in situations of order, if they are very ordered, also they demand order in the external world. People who are going through inner turmoil, they shatter the outer world too. Plenty of examples of that. It's usually not the furniture, it's usually the inhabitants, but it doesn't matter. It's a And... It's fascinating to note, and I think we've discussed before, that if you examine the world of artistic expression, which is a wonderful subject to talk about, I don't have enough time this evening, you'll find that our response, that, that the human expression in art form, what, whatever art form it is, is always an expression of the inner harmony or symmetry of the culture. And it's very noteworthy that if you examine the last four, five or six centuries of Western culture, you'll notice that in all art forms there's been a progression from incredibly stylized symmetry to chaotic breakdown. That's a very interesting observation, and our sources talk about the pre-Messianic chaotic state of the mind, right? And you can examine it in any field you like. In painting, yes, in painting, there was a time, as Miller always used to say, there was a time in the history of painting when when a painting of a bowl of fruit looked like a bowl of fruit, right? But if you go into, you know, I mean, today a painting of a bowl of fruit is produced by the fellow throwing the paint backwards over his shoulder and then getting his dog to walk on the canvas and then... 
or else they have a canvas the size of the wall with a red spot in the bottom and they have a little sign underneath that says angst you know and what's really funny is they sold it for a million dollars to the <laughs> Metropolitan Museum but anyway you know this is what it is and if you look in all art forms sculpture there was a time when sculpture classical sculpture was you could see every sinew it's, it's, it's realistic it's representational nature was what defined its beauty Today, a sculpture, if you go to an exhibition of sculpture today, you won't see every sinew. You'll see a few tin cans welded together with a few pistons and cogs, and, you know, you, uh, you can trace it. There was a time in poetry where the rhythm was necessary. That means the cadence, the rhythm, the rhyme. The, the beauty of the piece of work was defined by its structure. It, fitted, it, it, it managed to be expressive and creative within its structure. Today, the modern ear finds that even a little boring. Right? If you take a Shakespearean sonnet and you note its, its, its rhythm, right? The so-called iambic pentameter. You know, the modern ear falls asleep. Because modern poetry, there's no, all the lines are different angles, there's no capital letters, there's no spelling, there's no... You know, it, it's very interesting. And it's fascinating that in all branches of artistic expression you see the same thing. Theatre, for example, Greek drama was highly stylized. It fitted the rules, a tragedy had certain rules. Today, the, the postmodern, the modern postmodern era features theatre of the absurd where you know where, where two garbage cans occupy the stage and two existential type characters pop up from under the things and say a few possibly meaningful lines you know it's very that's very revealing that's very revealing it's, it's you know and uh, architectures like that and interior designs like that and um, music is like that too music if you go back over the last three, four, five centuries Classical in the, class, in the Baroque period, music was extremely org- mathematically symmetrical, and the classical phase was highly or- ordered, less so, but highly ordered. Romantic music is much freer. And when you get into modern and postmodern music, eight tonal music, when Stravinsky's first eight tonal piece was played in Paris, the audience tried to kill him. They tried to kill him. Right? The police had escorted him from the road. Today, that is, today there's a fellow who composes music on the parts of a mobile, and the pianist, as he sees it move in front of his eyes, he plays what he sees. There's another fellow who puts his cat on the keyboard and sticks it with a pin. <laughs> and as the cat tries to get off the keyboard, the audience has listened to this. That's very interesting. That's very, very revealing. And you'll find it throughout all branches of artistic expression. And that is a very revealing insight into the nature. If art's function is to reflect the consciousness of an age, if that's what its function is, then this is what you see. It's, very, it's a very interesting observation. But... There's a lot to talk about there, and it's not our subject directly. But the first level of order is an order that, used, that, that is order for its own sake. It's the natural <coughs> symmetry order of the world. Let's move on, because what we want to get to this evening is a much higher level. The second level of order he calls Seder L'Shem Teitz Oisov, which means order for the sake of its result, function. For example, for example, let's say you have isolated pieces like books. To make them useful, you put them in a library with an index. The index is the system of order that's imposed on the parts. It makes the books useful. And it's a very interesting observation, and Khanan used to say this, that the more books you have, the more desperately you need the order. That means if you have a few books, 20 books, you don't need an index to find what you want. If you have 20,000 books, you're worse off having 20,000 without an index than having 20, because you never find what you want. In fact, that's the first principle of Torah learning, is to develop an organized mind. It's not the facts. The facts are irrelevant. It's being able to organize them and deal with them and systematize them Right, it's, the power of, it's the power of thinking. You don't want a child to develop a knowledge of fact. That's just going to confuse him. What you want is a powerful mode of thought. 
And there's a connection with the first and second levels as well. The great Muslim teachers would say that you could observe from a person's externality very often in certain circumstances what his inner state is, and it's an interesting subject. But what I want to talk about is the third level of order. And that's what he used to call Seydel Hashem Akhtusapul. And this is mystical, transcendent, fascinating, almost impossible to put into words. It's what we need to study. There's a level of order in the universe which certain systems manifest, like Torah, the Jewish people, and certain physical systems too, where the parts are disposed in such a way that they form a unity of function. For example, a simple example perhaps would be an engine, where all the parts in the engine or the machine have to be disposed correctly. Or perhaps an electric circuit, or perhaps the genes, certain chemical sequences perhaps. The parts of the machine have to be correctly organized so that the thing functions. And if one place is not in its function, is not in its place, the function is disturbed. Now the obvious question here, and this shows it up very, very beautifully, the obvious question here for the inquiring mind, and I'm sure you're already thinking this through, perhaps, perhaps I don't even have to say the answer, I'm sure you've already come up with the answer, but for those of you who like to hear it anyway, the question that must be bothering you here is what's the difference between the order of books in a library that we call the index and the order of parts in a machine? After all, both of them require all the parts to be put in correct. Yes? That means the, the books have to be, each book has to be put in its correct place relative to the others to make that index an index. And each part of the machine has to be put in its place to make... Yeah? But there's a massive difference and that's what we need to understand. The difference is this. That the index that's imposed on a library is such that if the index is missing each book still remains a book. You may not find it, but each book has its value. You may never find that book, but any book you pick up will still be integral. That means the book will still be integrated, still be cohesive, still be a book. But if one piece of an engine is missing, then the piece is worthless and so is the rest of the machine. In circuits that are integrated, in, 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 in machines, in systems that are integrated in this way, each piece is not just a piece. It has no meaning on its own. The only meaning the piece has is in terms of the intensity of its bonding into the whole. Now, that's a remarkable observation. It means that there's a duality in every piece here, which is that every piece is absolutely unique, absolutely unique. No other piece could do that function. And yet, it's within that piece is an identity with a whole. I mean, the, the, e the easy illustration of it is that if you take out one of those pieces, let's say you're driving through the desert in your four-wheel drive supercharged monster that you need to get to work here in London uh, you know <laughs> let's say you take that thing one day through the desert and 500 miles from nowhere a little screw from the carburetor falls out into the desert sand and gets buried that little screw you're in an interesting situation there because that little screw which before was unnoticed and unnoticeable because that little piece of metal which is worthless in its small so ridiculous in its smallness you couldn't it's worth less than the smallest coin has now become worth the entirety of the machine and maybe even your life that's a remarkable thing. That means when it was fitting into its place, it was completely blended in unnoticed. But in fact, what, what was dependent on that little piece was the entirety of the... But you, you notice it when it's not there. Because when it's not there, it ceases to be anything and everything else becomes worth it. It's a remarkable thing. That means the parts that form a unity of a whole in these types of systems have an incredible duality. They are both isolated and unique, incredibly, incredibly expressed in their uniqueness because, because every other part needs them. And yet, when they don't do what they're supposed to do, they become nothing. Not only become nothing, they make everything else nothing too. The Balai Musa, for this reason, they, they used to say, you should have two pieces of paper in your pockets at all times. On the one should be written, I am nothing. And on the other should be written, the world was created for me. Right? Because the concept is that you, in your, in your isolated smallness, are nothing. You're, you're, you're ridiculous in, your, in cosmic terms. 
Right? You, you're nothing, not in space, not in time, not in intellect, not in nothing. But if you're not doing what you should be doing, the whole cosmic structure, right? Every person's unique, every human being, every Jew, every, every blade of grass, every grain of dust, according to Kabbalist teaching. Everything has to be exactly where it has to be. And if you step aside, the only difference between you and a blade of grass, or a grain of dust, or a cockroach, is that they never step out of line. That's the only difference. No planet and no cockroach ever does what it's not supposed to do. So they can be relied on. It's only you, occasionally me, who, <laughs> who step out of line and do what you're not supposed to do. Right? But when one of us does that, only human beings who have free will, angels don't have free will in this sense, and no, no, no animate or inanimate creature or object does. But the human who has free will, when you step out of line, you enter a very fascinating paradoxical state. When you step out of line and stand where you shouldn't, at that moment you have an amazing sense of expression of yourself, because no one's telling you what to do. I'm not being, no one commands me, I do what I want. So you feel that a whole world is yours and dependent on you, but in fact you've stepped out of reality. Because the moment you step out of where you should be, you become nothing, and you cause the whole thing to crash. In fact, our concept is that you'll have to pay twice for that. You'll have to pay for what you were doing that was wrong, and you'll also have to pay for the work you left undone during that half an hour while you were doing what you shouldn't have been doing because the whole system ground to a halt at that time. <coughs> if you work for me, if you work for me and you make a private phone call, right, you make a long distance call on my account, you owe me twice. One is for the money you spent being disloyal and the other is there was five months of salary that you were paid that you didn't work for. The two problems. So the paradox is that human ego is built in such a way that when you step out of line and you, you, you move out of your place in the system because it's very constricting to be in your place in the system because there's no degree of freedom. You move out, you feel incredibly free and you feel like you are everything. But in reality, spiritual eyes looking at the situation will see that you are nothing in the system as ceases to be or to function. And the paradox is when you step into your place, so, so as you stand in that place, you at one and the same time you lose your identity you have to swallow ego you have to, you have to, you have to annul that but at that moment you swell into the dimensions of, of the totality it's a remarkable thing that's a genuine freedom what does this have to do with the receiving of the Torah? so our sources say that when the Torah came down every Jew had to stand in a certain place Moshe ben Moses looked into each Jew's eyes and he said you stand here and within each family each person had to so to speak stand in a particular place and each family in a particular place and each tribe and there was a military formation. And when the Torah came down in its structure, each Jew, each Jewish neshama received its chelik, its part in Torah. And because Torah is an organic entity, it's like an electric circuit. And electric circuits function in such a way that if you pull a piece out, it doesn't matter which piece, you have nothing. If you pull a piece out of your radio, it can be a transistor or a battery or a tiny, ridiculous piece of wiring. Radios don't work on average. If I said to you, what are you upset about? 99.9% of your radios there. You just don't, you, you wouldn't be sympathetic to my point of view. Because they don't work that way. And genes don't work that way. If I say, what are you worrying about your genetic code? It's only one gene in a thousand billion. Genes don't work that way. You need all of them. Or well, the ones that you need, you need all of them. And if I say that there's a little crack in your mezuzah, and you say I'm being petty, right? a crack in the letter in a Sefer Torah or a mezuzah is like a gene missing, or it's like a piece of circuitry missing, an electric circuit. It's not, it's not negotiable. It's, we don't look at it as, a, as an average. A mezuzah is a live creature. A mitzvah is a living creature. And it needs its essential integrated organization, otherwise it isn't alive. It's not pettiness, it's just life-saving. And therefore, that's the nature of our interrelationship. It puts a completely different face on all of our perception, all of our consciousness, because you're not. You are a world unto yourself. That perception is correct. But on the other hand, you're integrated in a world where you have to lose all your degrees of freedom to achieve your freedom. It's a remarkable thing. Maturity means being able to understand 
that by giving up all of those false degrees of freedom is where you become real. That's what maturity in a relationship is. You know what's also interesting is that just like we said in the beginning of this talk, that everything that you're expected to know in the higher world, you actually have an immediate experience of. Do you know that we have a psychological thrill? That means we have an inner thrill when we relate to both sides of this paradox. You know that there's a thrill in being a loner, being isolated and alone. The lone ranger syndrome. You know, men have that worse than women, more, more, more intense than women. Where everything depends on you, the lone ranger hero syndrome, where, you know, that's a, a male fantasy. Where, uh, you know, there's one minute left to go in the match. And he's caught on his own goal line with a defeat staring them in the face. And in a dazzling show of absolute, total brilliance, he defeats the whole enemy team, including his own people getting in his way. <laughs> and with one second left to go, you know, scores totally unaided, you know, saves the whole... That's a... Any male who tells you that he doesn't have that fantasy is lying through his teeth because... <laughs> because that's the expression on the male side of ego. And yet, paradoxically, we also thrill very unnaturally, it would seem, to losing our identity in a relationship or a team. For example, when people function in a crew, if you've ever, if you've ever had that, emo, that, that amazing and transcendent experience of functioning in a crew or a team, whether it's in a military situation or a mass gymnastic thing or in dance, when, when, when the parts fit together in, in a harmony such that it is a remarkable experience there, in the losing of self in something larger, that's very hard to put into words, but in losing, in losing the sense of self, the paradox is that instead of disappearing, you swell to the proportions of the whole of the whole of the whole exercise. It's a remarkable thing. Have you ever had the experience of marching in a military situation? Have you ever had that experience? You march in a battalion of thousands of people. There's a certain moment where there's a where, where everything locks in. In a in an indescribable way, suddenly you you there's an electric experience of losing your own sense of individuality and blending into a human machine. That is, it's a remarkable thing. Of course, there's the paradox in that moment. There's a tremendous temptation when that happens to go like this. You know, because your mother's watching from the grandstand and when you do that, she'll see you. You know, I mean, they'll shoot you, of course, but the point is that, you know, it, it feels like it might be worth it because it, it's that paradoxical and that's, that's problematic. Why do we thrill? If we thrill to being alone, we should be threatened by losing ourselves in a group. And if we thrill to losing ourselves in a group, we should feel alone and lost and threatened being... But it's not like that. We thrill to both poles because that's the human condition. <coughs> right? Perhaps I can illustrate it a bit more like this. Where, where, do we, where do we learn this most directly and where are we supposed to learn it most directly? It's probably in marriage. In a love relationship, whether it's between friends, which has a certain purity that marriage doesn't have, or it's in a marriage, which has other levels of intensity... The learning ground for this bonding of self with the divine. You know, this is a this exercise is called Dvaikus. That's a Dvaikus means very hard to put into words, but it means the sensation, the effort of having lost one's own identity, not just in the cosmic structure, but in, in the divine source. <coughs> when they talk about it, that means that with tremendous meditation and effort and w- work on purity, one can reach a situation where not because you're a nobody, but because of who you are and who you've become, you could actually blend into that divine reality. But the paradox that the mystics talk about that is when you get there, you don't disappear. You then for the first time discover who you are as an individual. Now, how on earth do you convey that? How, how on earth do you tell a, a, a beginner, this is what you're striving for? Where on earth, and the answer is, where on earth is marriage? 
Because what marriage is supposed to be, it's a lost art. I mean, it's a, if you're a man, you can, you can forget about it. If you're a woman, you can at least, you know, long for it. <laughs> but the, the idea of marriage is supposed to be two completely separate entities, in fact, Kabbalistically, two opposite entities, bonding into a third thing, which is their unity. But it has to be done, in, it has to be done that way. The way it has to be done is by each partner giving himself or herself into this relationship with complete, complete vulnerability. That means there can be nothing held back. Complete vulnerability, complete giving. Fearless, it has to be absent. And that's why men have a problem usually, because there's an ego problem, there's a fear of losing self and giving it away. Uh, very often it's a female talent and, a, and a, a, a graceful, intuitive ability, very often. But the method is to give oneself away. And the result is, the paradox is, by giving yourself away entirely so that there's nothing left, in that harmony that's built, in that entity which is built, that is far greater than the sum of the parts, the paradox is you discover that you didn't lose yourself, you found who you are as an individual. The self comes into sharper focus. And of course what you do immediately with that newfound self is you put it right back in. Because you don't want that either. And marriage is supposed to be a nuclear reaction of this giving. Right? In, and our sources talk about the blending of the soul with Hashem, with God, in a sense that you lose yourself in His oneness because that's all there really is. And paradoxically you discover and you become more sharply defined as who you are. That's our notion of the final... Of course, the work in marriage is, is one work. In, in, in spiritual growth, in general, the, the work, of course, is sacrificing the ego. The greatest individual who ever lived, as an individual in terms of fame and, and greatness, individually and privately, was Moses, Moshe And he, the Torah says, was the humblest man who ever lived. And the one is the reason for the other. It's because he could empty himself out totally of his own inner content that he could be filled with a genuine content. Of course, but, but you have to do it. You have to empty the content out genuinely. If you're emptying the content out in order to have... Again, it's only a genuine giving away of self that can achieve this. Like the Gemara says that only one who genuinely flees from honor will be genuinely honored. So a man once came to the Chazanish and he said, Rabbi, I've been running away from honor all my life and still hasn't found me. <laughs> so the Chazanish said to him, yeah, that's because you're looking over your shoulder. <laughs> that's, that's a problem. There's a genuine giving away of self. As soon as it's being done for what the self will gain, of course that's the, of course that's the opposite. Of so, we have here the concept of parts blending into a whole that we call Pratuklal. That's the most, perhaps the central theme of all Torah. Is that the world is built in such a way that we have a perception and ability to understand that parts can blend in such a way. You can't put this into words. You can't put what a marriage is into words. If you could, it wouldn't be it. You can't put what a friendship is where the bond between the two becomes a relationship that is far greater than either one or the two together. There are no words for that. And the reason there are no words is because words are finite things. And you're talking about something here that's transcendent. That verges on the infinite. can be experienced because the mind has, ability to, has the ability, the, the soul, the neshama, perception, consciousness, has the ability to relate to that which transcends physicality. The finite words can't say it. This cannot be described. But we have the ability to perceive that. You can put parts together in such a way that it becomes patently obvious that something has been constructed here more than the parts. And there are many examples. Uh, perhaps, the, perhaps the example that's relevant here in Sfera is music. Music. What we're going through now in the seven weeks of seven. Right? Let's talk about a seven-note scale. There are other scales. There are other scales that don't have seven notes. But we use a seven-note scale in the West the Torah is posited upon such a notion of a seven-note natural scale. 
King David was the seventh, for example, of the seven great biblical characters, and he is the one who is called Neims Miros Yisrael, the sweet singer. And the reason is he brings the seventh note to the world. It's a very deep notion without going into the mathematics of the, or the harmonics or the mathematical relationships of the, way, of the frequencies of the sound. Just like there are seven colors in the spectrum of light. That's not accidental. That's not just a notion. That's not a convention. There are seven colors and they have a very specific mathematical relationship. The wavelengths of light that make up those things with the three primary colors, just like you have three, three defining notes in our, in our chord, the tonic, the dominant, and the subdominant. A very interesting relationship here in the seven-note scale. But be that as it may, in these seven weeks, what we're studying is that notion of how seven times seven builds up to the 50th. And the concept is that we work, we work here through seven weeks. Each one has seven days. When you put the seven times seven together, you get to something called the 50th. The 50th has no number. The concept is where you get to when you put the pieces together is something that's beyond the pieces. You know, when we count the 49 days, the Torah says, Tisperu Hamishim Yom, right? We count, yeah, we're entering the last week now. We're moving towards the last week. The Torah says, Tisperu Hamishim Yom, count 50 days. You know, we don't count the 50th day. The night before Shavuot, we count 49. On the night of Shavuot, we don't say anything. But you know, we observe the Torah. The Torah says, do something, we do it. And it says, as clear as could be, Tisperu Hamishim Yom, count 50 days. Comes the 50th day, we say nothing. Because the concept is, the deep concept here, is that the counting of the 50th, 50 means beyond count. 49 is the concept of measure in the world. The word midah in Hebrew, which means measure, adds up to 49. Mem, Dalad, and Hey, 49. The concept of measure in Hebrew means that which can be counted is 49. The 50th means that which transcends. If you gave it a number, you'd be limiting it to just another number. You'd be breaking the concept of its transcendence. The way we count the 50th day on Shuras is by not counting it. We count 49, he counts the 50th. The whole idea here, the Masilis Yisharim says, The beginning is work, the end is a gift. The gift is guaranteed if you do the work, but it's a gift. The whole idea of spiritual growth, we say, Yagata umatsata. Yagia in Hebrew means labor. You labored and you found. That's the, that's the, that's the, that's the idiom of, of Jewish spiritual growth. Yagata umatsata. You made an effort and you found. But the problem is those words don't fit together. Yagia means labor or effort. Metzia means an unexpected find. That's not the way you should express it. You should say, Yagata, and you should say, Paalta, Asita, Hisanta. You should use a word in Hebrew that means you achieved, you built, you did. What do you mean you found? Metzia in Hebrew means an unexpected find that you stumbled over not having... Ex- but you said you worked for this. But the beautiful, inexpressible sensitivity here in the Jewish mind is that you work intensely hard for this thing. And yet when you get there, the result's a gift. Because it's beyond... If you've ever tried to come up with an inspiration to solve a problem or create something, and you know that you worked intensely for that thing, but you know what the work is? It's walking around hoping you'll be given the gift. You can't do it. You can't solve a problem when you don't have the solution. You can't do an inspiration. If you need to be inspired about something creative, let's say, you can't do that. You can try desperately. Usually the harder you try, the further you push it away. Do you know what concentration means? Concentration doesn't mean thinking about the solution to your problem. You can't. You don't have the solution. Concentration means keeping the noise out of the way. Concentration means keeping the noise, the distraction out of the way. When you keep the interference and the static out of the way, it falls in. It usually happens exactly when you stop trying. You give up in desperation, you collapse, you go to sleep frustrated, you wake up, you say, I've got it! And then you've got the chutzpah to say, I worked it out. (laughs) You didn't work it out, you were given it as a gift. You were aware that when you stop trying, it's given. You know, you see, in English you can't say these things. In English you say you had an idea. In Yiddish you say an einfall. You know what that means? It falls in. 
It says it. It falls in. That's what an iron fall is. It fell in. You get it by keeping yourself... Rav Asaman used to say, the world is full of light except where we cast the shadows. You're so busy trying to be the big deal who's shining all the light that you keep getting in the way. As soon as you accept that, you get out of the way. The light shines. In terms of personality. Music is that experience. Music, again, it's impossible to put into words. If you've ever enjoyed music, if you've got any sensitivity to music, then the words can only harm the experience. But since we are not going to sing for you, that's for sure. I'll just clumsily put it into words. And that is, when you put the notes together correctly, you have an experience called music. That is a remarkable thing. If you've ever thrilled to that, you know immediately what that means. That's remarkable. You take a few notes, and you put them together correctly, and suddenly you have a tremendous welling of emotion. A tremendous welling up of response. But how does that happen? Here, you take the notes. If you separate them in time, what happens if you separate the notes in time? You have a plink, then a plonk, then a plink. What does that do to you? Not much. But if you put the plinks and plonks and plinks together in the right way, you suddenly have a thing called music. Where did that come from? Where, where did that arise? You know, in modern neurobiology and other fields, they call it an emergent phenomenon. That's the jargon. It's an emergent phenomenon. When you put the neurons of the brain together in the right order, you get something called consciousness. It's, it emerges from the structure. It's emergent. That's what they call it. That's what music is. You put the notes together correctly, something happens that isn't the notes. It's called music. There's a very clear experience of transcendence. When you put the parts together correctly, they do something more than the parts. It's a rem- that's what the world is. The world is to be put together in such a way that it gets you beyond. That's what you can see in your perception. You're capable of perceiving an integration in the world that goes beyond the parts. It's ridiculous and clumsy and, and hopeless to put into words. But if you have any modicum of humanity in you, you know that that's where life genuinely is lived, in those, the intensity of such relationships or the intensity of such response to what the world can do when it's integrated correctly. The source of this is difficult to go into a lot of detail. I'll just mention the one reference for you. The Ramchal talks about this in one of his books. Again, it's a very refined discussion and it needs a certain technical background, but I'll just mention briefly, for those who are interested, he, he, he poses a, a most fascinating question with weeks of thought. He talks about a certain world. I mean, we can't now go into the technicalities. He talks about a certain aspect of the higher world in which all things are one. The source of oneness, he talks about that world. And he points out that in that world there are ten elements. Ten mystical elements. Ten mystical elements that are emanations from that world, in that world. But that's not our subject directly. What is our subject is, after he gets through discussing that, he asks the most amazing question. He says, if there are ten elements there, and that is of great importance, the whole Torah is based on that, the whole world is built on that, how can a number be of essence? This is a well-known question in philosophy and various other nuances. How can a number be of essence? Again, you hear the question, it's a remarkable question. Let's say you have some objects. You have ten friends, let's say. Is the fact that they ten of essence? Surely not. I mean, if the number wasn't there, they'd still be... What's of essence is the fact that they're your friends. They're who they are. They're the people that they are. The number that we attach, in fact, in the philosophy of science, there's a very interesting debate about whether numbers are intrinsic or they're just notions that we use yeah, for convenience. Put in its broadest terms, the discussion is, is mathematics, is mathematics discovered or invented? Is it real and we fathom it and we, and we attach ourselves to it, we discover it? Or is it just a notion that we... It's not clear in the, in the, it's not clear in the philosophical world. 
But here the question is, if they turn all these things, or whatever the number is, it happens to be ten, then how do we describe a number as being of essence? Surely what's important is what they are and that they are. Am I making... Are we getting someplace? The fact that there's a number... We're talking about a level of essence. We're talking about oneness. We're talking about the source of existence. We're not talking about some detail. And there, when you examine Jewish teachings, you hear that there are ten elements. <coughs> Everything there has to be of essence. How can a number be of essence? And the second question, why ten? But we've got enough work cut out for us with the first question. And the answer is this. The concept is that that world is a world in which the number is an assembly of parts to make one. Why ten needs also to be examined. But the essence here is that the world of oneness that we, that we relate to here is a oneness made of parts. You know, when one, you have oneness that's simple, that's not... When you have one pure, simple thing, that's not called one, that's just what it is. Oneness means when more than one thing have become one. Again, peace. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ubiquitous idea in Torah thinking. Peace, for example. Peace doesn't mean tranquility. The word shalom in Hebrew does not mean no conflict. That's not what it means. It does not mean tranquility or uniformity or, or, or no conflict. That's not what peace means. Shalom means opposites that are potentially in conflict that have got together in peace. Yeah? That's the concept of peace. The word shalom means shalem in Hebrew. Shalem means completed. All the parts are fitted together. There have to be parts that are no longer in conflict to make peace. Otherwise you're not talking about peace, you're just talking about sameness. When we talk about one, we always mean parts that form one. What are the, how many, yeah, if you talk about the Jewish creed, there are 13 articles of faith. 13. What is 13 in Hebrew? Always one. The first one is that Hashem exists, His oneness. There are 13. Why do you express oneness? Because 13, again we can't go into the number, why 10, why 13? But 13 is the Jewish concept of how the multiplicity, the maximum breakdown, 13 is always in Jewish philosophy, 13 is always the maximum breakdown of a space. You know that. There are three dimensions, which have six sides. Of course, the seventh, which is Shabbos, is the tying together of all the dimensions. But if you express three dimensions fully, the fullest expression of three dimensions, you could express on the axes, yes, on, on mutually right-angled axes, and you would express in ideal form a cube. Is that right? The full extent in space would be a cube. And a cube is surrounded by 12 lines, right? You have four there four there and the four that join them and the thirteenth bonds them into oneness so our concept of our concept of oneness the word echad in Hebrew adds up to thirteen what more could you yeah, the word echad alaf, chet and dalal is thirteen the word ahava in Hebrew we spoke about love ahava means love it adds up to thirteen add up the letters of ahava because, because you're talking about disparate elements getting together to make one thing that's what love is based on hav each ahava based on the root hav means to give not taking, giving. So each partner gives entirely, or each component, you get something that adds up to 13, which itself means one. And of course, that's why it's the ultimate Jewish number, and that's why Bar Mitzvah is 13. Because the integration of the parts in the self. And incidentally, while we're on the subject, that's why the non-Jewish world cannot abide 13. Because the Jewish ideal is pulling parts together in a oneness. And the non-Jewish philosophy is making multiplicity, and power, and muchness, and quantity. And therefore, 13 is not... It's at variance with their... They're very, very... Very sensitive about 13. Extremely sensitive about 13. There's a deep reason. There's a deep reason for this. 10, it's 13, it's 49, it's 50. It's all the same theme. 
running through how the components are locked into one. And he says that in that world, we're talking about a, the source of where multiplicity bonds into oneness. That's our concept, and that's our, that's our role, that's our function, that's, our, that's the purpose of our consciousness, to pull the world together into a oneness. You know, when we say Shema, I mean, there's so many ways to show this, we don't have time to go into all of it. When, when you say Shema, yeah, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel. Listen carefully. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. Hashem Elokeinu. God, our God, is one. What do you mean, Shema Yisrael? Listen, hear. What do you mean by that? W- w- again, there's no words in Torah that are extraneous. There aren't other verses that begin with saying, Shema Yisrael. Listen. So, what are you supposed to understand when, when one verse in the Torah says, before it delivers message, it says Shema. So the unschooled ear, yeah, the immature and wrong non-Torah sensitivity is, it's urging you to listen. Maybe you weren't paying attention. Maybe your, conscious, maybe your mind was wondering. And what's coming is important. So we say Shema, listen. This you should listen to. The rest is, you know, dispensable. Do you know what Shema means? Shema means make oneness. Hearing. Do you know what hearing means? First of all, the word Shema in Hebrew literally means to gather parts into one. It says, for example, Vayashama Shaul Eta'am. He gathered the people together. It doesn't mean anybody listened. The verb Shama in Hebrew, right? the root of that means to assemble. Do you know what listening is? Do you know what listening is? Long discussion. But briefly, in a nutshell, the two higher senses in which beauty are relevant, because beauty is only relevant in sight and sound. From smell, taste and touch, you don't have beauty, you only have pleasure. <coughs> Aesthetics are only in sight and sound. Aesthetics means elements that are disparate, that are different, that are opposite. They get together, instead of clashing, they form a unity, they form a harmony. Hearing is the mode of assembly into oneness. Seeing is not like that. When you see a scene, very deep sources talk about this, when you see something with your eyes, all the parts are there at once. The, the unique characteristic of seeing is that all the parts are there at once. There's no assembly that has to be done. Because they're all there at once. In fact, that's why the Hebrew word for seeing, re'iyah, is the same as re'ayah, which means a proof. That's why I said English seeing is believing. Because if you see it, there's no construction. You can't mistake it and in pure form. Hearing is all construction. The way you hear is in the darkness. The way you hear is when I speak, you hear one syllable, and then that fades before you hear the next, and that fades before you... And you still don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, you probably never do. But the point is that... <laughs> the point is that someone who, do, who makes sense, the way, the way you hear it is, you hear one sound, and then the next, and then the next, and only at the end, by the last sound, you reconstruct all that's faded from memory. And you, all of hearing happens in the, in the depth of your own consciousness, in the darkness. By the time you hear the last syllable, the others are nowhere to be found. They're only memory elements, which you now reconstruct. It's a remarkable thing. That's not seeing. When you see something, you see it all at once. But you can't see a story. The way you see... Of course, you can see with your ears. And you can hear with your eyes too, obviously. You can see things in sequence that happen. That's called listening. Uh, Are we together? That's not called seeing. That's called listening. But the, the essential mode in the body that teaches it is the ears. Hearing means to assemble the parts. Hearing means to assemble the parts. You reconstruct it and it's all subjective. Seeing is objective. Whatever's out there is a re'iya, it's a re'iya, it's a proof. Hearing is the way you put it together. So when we say Shema Yisrael, we mean put together the world, assemble it, make it one. Testify that it's one even though it doesn't look that way. You know in Shema Yisrael, the, the Shema, the Ayin of Shema, and the Dalad of Echad are written big. The two letters together spell aid, witness. When you say Shema Yisrael, you say Jews. 
Assemble a broken down, chaotic, disastrously broken world. Assemble that into the unity of the theme that runs through it. You testify that what's not visible here, you begin to see. Aid in Hebrew, da, you reverse the letters, it spells die, inner knowledge. That's what Shema is. I mean, it's obvious from here. Again, we can't go into detail, but it's obvious from here. What happened at Sinai? When they stood at Sinai, what does the Torah say? They saw the sounds. You know that? What on earth does that mean? They stood at Sinai. The sound of the shofar is an amazing, cataclysmic revelation. Hashem appeared on the mountain. The Torah was given. And they heard, it says, it says they saw the sounds. What does that mean? How do you see sound? But the answer is this. When Hashem appeared on earth, there was no construction necessary. When Hashem, when that divine, infinite essence made contact with a finite world, which is impossible, but it happened. At that moment, there's no construction necessary. You know, the Medrash says nothing moved. At the moment when the Torah is being given, nothing moved. No bird flew, no molecule vibrated, no atom, nothing moved. You know what that means? There was no place to go. Everything was there. When Hashem, the world means running. You know that the word Eretz means running. In Hebrew, Eretz, al Shem Haritza. The world is running. The next world we call Shamaim. Do you know what Shamaim means in Hebrew? Shamim. All the destination. Sham in Hebrew means essence or destination. Again, you see, in English we've been trained to translate them in such pathetically anti-Jewish ways. We translate heaven and earth. We translate Eretz and Shemaim as heaven and earth. But for heaven's sake, where on earth? You know, is there, I mean... <laughs> Eretz and Shemaim are not heaven and earth. Eretz means they're running towards. That's what life is. And Shemaim means being there, where all the theirs accumulate. The word Sham in Hebrew means their destination. The word Sham in Hebrew means... Neshama, soul. It's the root of the word neshama, soul. The word sham in Hebrew means shame, a name which is a description of essence. It's always final destination where essence is expressed. So in this world, there's a moving towards. There's a story. You have to interpret it. You have to interpret your life. You think about what has led you to where you are in life. You don't see the events as they happen, but you reconstruct the Megillah. The Megillah of your life, which is Megaleh, which reveals who you are and where you are. You connect the events. They weren't meaningful at the time, but you see the pathway. So, Aretz is a process you have to interpret it by constructing it. But when Hashem appears, when the next world manifests in this world, there's nowhere to go. Nothing could move because movement would only be away. At a time like that, you can't hear. You can only see. There's nothing to hear. There's no construction. There's no one thing to the next to the next that has to be constructed. The Torah couldn't say that they heard the sounds. Is, is this clear? They couldn't have heard the sounds. Hearing implies a darkness that you have to hear and then forget and then remember and then reconstruct at the end the whole story. But when the Torah was given and Hashem appeared and we melted it, that's why they weren't alive. The Gemara says they died. When Hashem appeared, all the Jewish souls flew out to the source and the bodies were blasted back. And then they heard the second time He spoke, they were reconstructed and resuscitated and then they exploded again. They couldn't take that more than twice. But it means that the souls and the Shamas flew to their source. There was no movement possible. Everything was there. In such a situation, you can only see. That's why they had no free will. There was no opportunity to reconstruct this way or reconstruct that way like we have now. There was no darkness. And that's why they had no free will. The mountain was held over them. That's what it means. It wasn't held. What does it mean the mountain was held over them? It means Sinai was held over them. It means the experience of Torah was clear. It was life or death. It was exist or not exist. And this should be clear. And that is what it is. We have the, we have the ability to relate to a marriage, a love, a, a, a music. And deeply, more deeply than that, we have the ability to relate to our own inner integration. The inner being is chaotic. The natural state of the inner being is chaotic. A child is considered to have no connection between his parts. Bar Mitzvah is 13. Because 
It's at that stage that the disconnected, disparate elements of a child form a unity. That's what happens. He becomes one, and that's why he becomes fruitful. It's at the age of maturity that his body can produce fruit. When is the age of spiritual responsibility? What do they have to do with each other? But the concept is that tree becomes, when it becomes cohesively, when it, when it integrates, when all its parts come together, instead of being chaotic pieces, when it comes together as one, so then it becomes the one being that is able to maintain its own, project its own essence to infinity. That's what seed means. There's many, perhaps just, let's mention one briefly, one more, I mean, talk too much, we lose it. Let's just mention one, perhaps one more element here, and leave it at that. Do you know that the, do you know that the essential feature of the giving of the Torah was that the Jewish people formed one? The Jewish people formed one. They stood at Sinai like one person with one heart. It's not just that you know, it was a nice time of unity, they all agreed, and the Torah was given in that state. The Torah was given because they were one. The Torah is a transcendent phenomenon. It happens only where the world organizes itself in its parts, so that the parts melt into each other and form a transcendence. The Shekhinah rests, yet when ten men get together, ten Jews get together, you have a minion. Do you know what that means? The ten primal elements of the world, when they manifest the oneness, a woman doesn't apply to a woman, she has her own oneness within her. She's her own world. She's not made of parts. A color is called color. She's total. Now, that's another discussion. But when men who represent multiplicity, when they get together, a woman can connect on her own. She doesn't need a minion. When men get together, those disparate elements get together, you have a new thing called a minion. What does that mean? Because in ten Jews, when Jews get together, you're 22,000 Jews getting together, the Shekhinah manifests. And when 600,000 of them stood at Sinai, the Torah manifests. It's not because they happened to be. It's because they formed a oneness that they were as one heart. One person with one heart. When they blended into each other, they didn't become the same. They didn't become zombie-like robots, clones. That's not the idea of the Jewish people. The idea of the Jewish people is that each individual has to be flamingly unique, completely different from anybody else. We don't need repeats. Each one is a letter in a Sefer Torah, and you need all of the letters there, and it spells what it spells only when everybody's different. But you're different and you lock in. If you try and stand where he is, you destroy his job and you leave yours undone. You have to stand where you have to be. And when they stood like that, they locked into each other in that perfect harmony. That is the ultimate marriage, ultimate love. You become one person. The result is that the Torah comes down, which is the integration of the world. It's so obvious. You know, it's fascinating. Just, just, to, just to hear it through one step more deeply. I you know that the Ten Commandments, can you hear why they're ten? The Ten Commandments, which were given then, what, what did that integration result in? Ten Commandments. Do you know what's amazing about the Ten Commandments? They're given in two sets of five. Listen carefully, this is amazing. And I, I can't think of a more, if there's one message relevant to this disastrous, chaotic, hysterical generation, it has to be this. The Torah is given on two separate tablets. Why, if there are ten units that are the essence of Torah, was it given on two separate tablets? Why? Why not one? Surely, if anything should be monolithic, it should be these ten. Why are they separate? Because he had two hands? Is it more, ba- you know, easier to carry? No. <laughs> There's an amazing secret here. Amazing secret. So obvious. Incidentally, you know what those tablets are? Those tablets are the Jewish heart. Do you know in every shul, do you know what the tablets looked like? Of stone, the Luchai Seven? They were cubic, you know that? They were absolutely symmetrical cubes. 
And the Gemara says they were bored through with the letters. They weren't just engraved. They're, you know, the three kinds of expression, of, of graphic expression. One is writing, where one medium is put on another. The second is engraving, where something's carved into something else. There's no second medium. And the third is the ultimate engraving, where it's bored right through. Right? In fact, on the contrary, the Gemara says you could read the words from either side and they read forwards. Including the letters that suspended miraculously like a mem and a samach. Didn't fall. You know that in every shul on earth, in every synagogue on earth, virtually, there's a depiction of those tablets. And you know how they're drawn with two rounded tops? You ever notice that? Two elongated tablets with two rounded tops. It's completely inaccurate. Completely inaccurate. And throughout history, Jews have drawn them that way. And we don't have customs that are inaccurate or not spiritually deep. Do you know what the meaning is of that thing? It's a childlike depiction of a heart. It's tablets forming a Jewish heart. That's what it is. Because it says, Aluach kasveim aluach libecha. Write them on the tablets of your heart. That's what's going on here. They are bored through and through, engraved in the Jewish heart. Do you know what engraving means? Writing means you make a contrast between one medium and another, and that's how you read. Do you know what engraving means? Engraving means that the message is the medium. That you, you can't, the only way you can separate the medium is to break the thing. And writing's not like that. Writing is one thing on another. So the Torah is written. The Torah is very deep, but it's written. But the Ten Commandments are not written, they're engraved. The message and the medium, the heart and its message, the heart and its consciousness, the Jewish heart and what it holds, are one thing. You have to break that heart in order to take the message away. But you know why they're two? Because one set is the mitzvahs that relate, the five primal mitzvahs between us and Hashem. Man, God, mitzvahs. The other are the five primal man, man mitzvahs. You're aware of that. You're aware of that, right? There's a mystery. Why is the fifth of the man God mitzvahs honoring your parents? Doesn't that sound like man man mitzvahs? Eh, to be discussed. Perhaps on Shavuos we'll have time to go into it. But the point is that there are two separate tablets. One contains the root of all mitzvahs between us and Hashem. The other contains the root of all mitzvahs between us and each other. But you know what? They parallel each other. Do you know that? They parallel one for one. And it's obvious when you go through them. I have time now. Perhaps on Shavuos. But you know that they parallel each other one for one. The first of the man-God mitzvahs parallels the first of the man-man mitzvahs. And so forth all the way through. Fantastic subject. And I just want to stand on one detail now. The first of the man-God mitzvahs is Anoich Hashem Elokecha, the essence and reality of Hashem. The first of the man-man mitzvahs is, Thou shalt not kill. What, what's the connection? What's the parallelism? It is a message that this world needs, this generation needs. If there's something they've got wrong out there. First of all, you have to know, these two tablets, what people misunderstand is, they think that there's two tablets. They're God-given. One relates between us and Him. One rela- you have to understand, it's not the, the understanding is that these two tablets, each of them is a mechaev. Each of them is a set of obligations. Each obliges. You have to understand this. God obliges you. But man also obliges you. What you're being taught here is, that there's an obligation to serve Hashem. His commands are commands. You're obliged. You're... But a human being obliges you too. Of course a human being only obliges you to treat him correctly because he's an image of the divine. Of course. That goes without saying. There's only one ultimate source. But in his manifestation of the divine, which an animal doesn't have, inanimate objects don't have, inasmuch as he's human and he carries a spark of the divine, he obliges you. Which means that when the Torah commands you to do mitzvahs between us, between each other, the totally wrong understanding is I treat you correctly because He commands me. Completely wrong. 
The right understanding is I treat you correctly because you are human. And because you oblige. Of course you only oblige me because you come from Him. Of course. But you as an entity, you're a separate tablet. You're a separate set of obligations. And of course the difference is worlds apart. I mean, if you do mitzvahs between man and man because He commands, only because He commands, you're very religious, very from. You only want to observe mitzvahs between each other because God commands. So what will happen? You go visit somebody who's sick. You're visiting because he's sick. Why? Because he commands. You care about him? That's irrelevant. On the contrary, the sicker is the better. It's more gashmat. You know, if he's really sick. <laughs> you want an asteroid? That's got to be Mahuda, right? If the guy's really languishing, if he's really sick, and if you get there and he's recovered and he's gone home, what a chutzpah. I don't know. He could have suffered a little. You, you hear how twisted this gets? The development of man-man mitzvahs. The concept is that you are commanded to feel for him. You're not com- when it comes to man-god mitzvahs, you're commanded to honor him and do because he says. But when it comes to man-man mitzvahs, you're commanded to do them because he says, look at the person. That's a separate set of obligations and he in his divine image obliges you as a person. Do you hear what's going on here? The first of the man-god mitzvahs is Anoche Hashem Elokecha. I am Hashem. What is that state? All of reality. And what's the first of the others? Respect for human life. Because that's the other set, the other manifestation of reality. When we lose respect for human life, do you see what's going on here? When there's a lack of respect for that, for Hashem, for the source, it's paralleled. Do you see what's going on? The connection, there are a lot of connections, but the one we need to stand on this evening is this. He obliges you because He is reality, He's the essence. That's what, that's what reality is. And do you know what man-man obligations are? When we bond into a oneness, when I respect you, there's a love between us. Your life is sacrosanct because it's divine. And I respect that in you. We bond into oneness here that makes the first commandment. Do you understand how they're organically linked? When humans are... The ultimate disparity between human beings is killing. The ultimate breakdown. There's no greater breakdown than that. There's no greater expression of lack of respect. When that happens and you break down me and you, then he disappears. Yeah? It's so obvious. What's the Jewish expression in marriage? Man and woman get together, they have the correct relationship, Hashem appears between them. That's the oldest idea in the Torah. Everybody else is religious to know that. You take Ish and Isha, man and woman, they have the same two letters. Aleph and Shin. But the man has a Yud and the woman has a Hey. When you put Ish and Isha together, you get a Yud and a Hey, Hashem's name. If Hashem is not there, you take out the Yud and a Hey, you have Ish and Ish, fire and fire, they consume each other. Why? Because two people get together and they form a unit that transcends the two parts, the divine manifests. That emergent or transcendent phenomenon is there. When people treat each other correctly, when there's respect for human life, when you see in him or her that transcendent spark, when you see that and you bond to that, and you, the, the, the face to the face causes a bonding, then that's, you, you're fulfilling at the same time as that mitzvah of love, you're fulfilling the same mitzvah as recognizing and manifesting and bringing down that obvious these things and of course if there's a practical message you, you like to go to lectures where there's a practical message you know you should remember when you walk out of here it's not right to kill people <laughs> but the part that's not funny is that they need to know that you it's not nice to kill people what you need to know is that at the level of any modicum of human decency that translates into increased respect but you don't need to be told not to go out and kill people but some of us do need to be told that the manifestation at a more sensitive level is that bonding if you don't care for that Jew human being 
If you don't care for him in a sense of oneness, then the two of us can't bond. We can't form that unity. We're not hope of receiving the Torah next week. When we receive the Torah next week, it means that we form a unity in such a way that it's kalev echad. That means that it doesn't be the same as him or her. On the contrary, your beauty is that you're different. And his or her beauty is that she's completely different. But the point is that you interlock. And that's what the Ramchal means. In that world of unity, where parts become one, that's the reason that the world manifests this phenomenon. If it wasn't like that in that world, you could put pieces together it would make no difference. Can you imagine a world like that? Imagine you had a jigsaw puzzle. Want an illustration? Imagine you have a jigsaw puzzle that makes a picture. The pieces are lying in chaos all over the table. You assemble them correctly and it would make no difference. That's what the world would look like. You, wouldn't have, you couldn't have no emergent phenomena. You could play music and you would hear the same plink and plonk and plink. It wouldn't make any difference how you played the notes. Of course, it wouldn't be this world. But the nature of the world is when you put them together, suddenly when they're correctly and sensitively balanced and appositioned, then what happens is you get a thing called music. When you put the pieces together correctly, you don't get pieces. Suddenly the pieces disappear, you get a picture. When you put two human hearts together correctly, they, they disappear and what you get is a third thing which is inexpressible in its beauty. And when you put all of the Jews together, and all of humanity ultimately, of course, you put them together correctly, then you get the experience that we call Matan Torah. Okay, let's start.